Morning. Is everybody back from visiting relatives? Nobody went to visit relatives but me. And it was fun. I um, visit relatives. We always visit relatives during uh, New Year's, surrounding New Year's, and uh, with my family. And I always get asked one of, of two questions that I absolutely detest. And it always gets asked at some point. One of them is, how is your church doing? I'll come back to that in a minute. The second one is, how many are you running? And I really hate that one the most. The how many of you running just, just is awful at so many levels. And I think I'm going to start responding by saying, the barns are full. There are so many cattle, we just don't have room for them. No, I wouldn't do that. But when they ask me, how are, how are things how are things going with your church, or how's your church? How's your church doing? What they're asking is one of those polite questions that we ask people that we really don't want a response to. You know what I'm talking about? When we when we just kind of perfunctorily say to people, "How are you?" and then we turn and walk on, you know. And so I've started answering that question with my family members by saying. When they ask, how's your church doing, I say, you know, that's one of the two questions I least like to ever hear asked of me. And then they say, oh, really? And so at that point, they know that they better listen very intently to what I'm going to say because I've upped the ante quite a bit on the conversation, right? And so then I say, yeah, and and of course, they know that they've been caught in asking one of those questions that has no real meaning, and I say that I don't, ever, I don't ever know how to answer that question. I, I, I just don't know. So lately I've started to say, well, you know, um, there's a young couple in our church and they have a son who's really unruly. And they've, they've started having enough faith to discipline him. I mean, it's a real answer, right? It's our church. Or there's a young woman in our church, and she was on this trajectory to being a, a, a powerful, you know, leader in Mayo Clinic. You know, she just had this thing light, outlined in her life. And then as she's reading the scripture and as she's growing in, in Christ, she's decided that she wants to be a mother and a wife. And that it doesn't really matter to her anymore about being powerful. And God's just really changed her life. And my favorite one is to say, you know, there was a young man who came to me uh, a week or two ago, and he just came and confessed some sin to me. He confessed his sin. That's my favorite one. In fact, I was talking with my wife and my niece, and we were sitting in the living room of my mother's house, and we were talking about this question. You know, it, it, it had come up the issue of confession, and we were talking for a while, and I, and I said, you know, I think that if I if I only could say one thing about my church and I was only allowed one description, what I would want to say is they confess their sin. You know, if you only had one thing you could say or if you, were, if you had one question you could ask to make a determination about a church that you might, go, you might be going to attend, would you ask possibly, do they confess their sins? You understand? It's such an important, important thing, the confession of sin. And so this morning, we're, we see Psalm 51, and it's David confessing his sin. And why is it such an important thing? Well, because we live in a world of cover-ups. See, Jeff, Jeff Ewer was up here praying the prayer of confession, and, and he said, you know, we want to cover things up. Well, that's absolutely true. We live in a world, a complete world of cover-ups. Everywhere we look, we can find examples of cover-ups. You can find examples of cover-ups in the school systems, in the 
local, state, and national governments, in all the bureaucracies that, that we are uh, privy to looking into anytime we want to look into them, right? In sports, we can find cover-ups. In churches, we can find cover-ups. In families, we can find cover-ups. We're just really, really good at cover-ups. That's what we do well. It's almost as if we're fine-tuned, like we're born with this, we're, we're cover-up savants, is what we are, right? But God hates cover-ups. God can't abide cover-ups. And so it's antithetical to God. It's anti-God's character to have things covered up. He's not interested in building a kingdom of cover-ups. That's not God's plan at all. God is interested in truth. That's what he wants from us. And that's what he has to receive from us. And so we have the account of David and Bathsheba, a very quick backstory. Uh, David is king of Israel, and he has wives. doesn't have a wife. He already has wives, and he's the king. He's in a position of power and affluence. And he sees a woman, and he desires her. She's married to a man named Uriah. And so David, Uriah is away at war, so David makes a plan. He has the woman brought to, his, to the, to the uh, castle. What does he live in? His residence, right? And he has the woman brought there. He has sex with her. She conceives a child. Well, then he knows he's in a difficult situation because now he's got a cover-up to do. And the way he thinks to do the cover-up is he'll have her husband come home, and her husband, having been away to war, he'll sleep with his wife, and then everybody will think the child is his, right? Well, the husband comes home. He brings the husband home. But the husband is a man of, of good character and literally says, how could I go and sleep with my wife when all of my friends are away there in battle? And he wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife. He slept on the porch. He slept in the gate. He slept places, but he wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife. So David said, this isn't working, and I've got a cover-up. So what, he had, what did he do then? Well, then he sent a letter in the hand of the man whose wife he had slept with to the man's superiors on the front line saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to assure that this man who delivers this letter to you gets killed. And here's how you can do it. Never mind why, just get it done. So the man takes the letter to his superiors They do what they're told, the man gets killed, right? Then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Because now David's got the man's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. She's there in in his house. She's pregnant. He thinks he's covered everything up. And God says, no, I don't like cover ups. And so he sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan comes to him with a story. He's setting him up. There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat out of his hand, it would drink out of his cup, lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler, and you understand, David had been a shepherd, right? Do you think David didn't have favorites with the sheep, the little lambs that he really liked, the ones that would follow him around, right? He did. He knew. This was a close story to David. It was about sheep. He knew sheep, right? Now, a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, that one little favorite lamb, and he prepared it for the man. For those of you who don't know what prepared it means, he slaughtered it, cut it up, and cooked it for the man. Right? He prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. Ooh. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And then Nathan says those famous words, which are, you are the man. 
And then he outlines everything David did with Bathsheba. And he particularly lays it out in reference to how David had God's blessing and God's approval and God's authority as king. And yet David was willing to do such a horrible, heinous act. And then God lays throughout through Nathan the punishment that will come. And then at a certain point in verse 13, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Uncover. Covers off. I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, there's going to be more things that are going to happen as a result of this. Well, this is the backstory to Psalm 51. This is the backstory that causes David to write those words. The series of events that lead up to it. And so, as, as Stephen read the introductory words to the psalm, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, I don't know when David wrote Psalm 51 or how long it was after Nathan had come into him. Maybe it wasn't that long. Maybe it was a while. Maybe David was able to ponder these words in order to write the song. And he pondered them for a while until he could put them down. Or maybe they came fresh to him fairly soon. Maybe right after Bathsheba's son died. Maybe they came very soon. We just don't know. But David took these words and put them into a psalm so that we would understand and hear. And I've divided the psalm up into six parts. I'm just going to go through these quickly, and then we're going to talk about some points of application as as regards confession, because that's what we're dealing with this morning is confession of sin. And so I want to go through the psalm quickly and then deal with issues regarding confession. Part one, David has the opening appeal for mercy and cleansing. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew he was in trouble. He knew he had a need. He knew that he needed God to do something for him. Be gracious to me. Have mercy on me. It's the opening appeal. Oh, Lord, I know. Have mercy on me. Here I am. And then from there, he immediately goes into the acknowledgement of his condition and the confession of his specific guilt. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you were justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So in this thing we have a couple of things, and we read this today and we think, oh, that's not fair. Because he's saying, against you and you only have I sinned. And so what do we say? What about Uriah? What about Uriah? Didn't David sin against Uriah? Well, yes, of course he did. He sinned against several people in this event. But the fact is, even as Nathan came to David, Nathan was saying, David, do you realize that this sin, how horrible this sin is? Your place is such a place that God has put you in, and now you have just drugged God's name through the gutter by sinning this sin. And you've done it publicly. Or no, you did it privately, but you thought you did it privately, I should say. And you've drugged God's name through the gutter, and you've destroyed his name, and this is not acceptable at all. And so certainly he sinned against those other people. But David is saying, look, I know. I sinned against Uriah, I sinned against Bathsheba, I sinned against many others in the course of this event, but wow, did I ever sin against God? Against you and against you only I've sinned. And then he speaks about his sin and he says, you are just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And God had spoken through Nathan and God had judged and it was serious and it was severe. Two very specific Three very specific, severe judgments. The child would die. David's house would always be a house of blood. And his own wives or concubines at a future date would be ravished in public. And that happens later by the hand of his own son. All three of those are specific judgments in David's life connected to Bathsheba and his sin. 
And so David says, you're right. You're just. You're blameless in your judgment. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He said, look, I am sin. I have from my father, Adam, sin. It came to me through my mother. I have sin. I'm a man. So he wasn't holding back in his confession. Next, he acknowledged God's piercing expectations. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. And this is the point where we have to see the whole psalm revolving around. This point of truth. Truth. We're about cover-ups. God is about truth. When God makes us to be like he is, he makes us to embrace and be truth. And so David is saying, this is where you desire truth. When I look deep down into myself, you want me to be true and honest and not lie. And then he appeals for specific recreation. He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David is hurting. He's hurting. He can feel it. It aches in him. The fact that God looks upon him and sees this sin. And he just aches. He hurts. And he says, Oh, oh God, help me. Recreate me. Wash it away from me. Don't look at it. Remove it. Cleanse me. Don't destroy me. Don't take your spirit from me. And so he appeals for recreation. And then he promises that others will benefit from his deliverance. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Lord, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. Now, at this point, it sounds like a bargaining posture, doesn't it? I'm hurting, cleanse me, forgive me, recreate me, if you do then, right? Well, that would be true, I suppose, if, if, we're, if it were most of us dealing with this. We would make a bargain with God somehow. We would say, cleanse us. And, you know, I was trying to think of something completely unpainful in the first service. So I said, we'll mow the church lawn. It's a really cool lawnmower. How many of you have ridden it? Okay. It's pretty cool, isn't it? You can tool along. You can see, like with, like with any kind of equipment like that, you get to look back and see this big swath of destruction that you wrought on the lawn, right? But we'll bargain. I'll mow the lawn. I might even shovel snow. I may even clean the bathroom at the church. But that's not David's point, is it? How do we know that David's not just bargaining and doesn't mean it? He immortalized his sin for the choir director on the occasion of David sinning with Bathsheba and Nathan coming to him. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He immortalized his sin. He's not bargaining with, you know, I'll do this or I'll do that. He is saying that he'll do something, but he's already in the process of it. He's doing it even in the words of the song that he's wrote and having other people sing. You know, they printed it in the, in the Jewish hymnal. Right? And that's his actual evangel. That's what he's saying. 
He is the demonstration of his own words. And at the end he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So he's saying, this is the message that I'll tell everybody. I'm telling them, I'm demonstrating it because I am myself an embodiment of the message. God desires a contrite heart. God desires a broken spirit. God desires a humble man. God desires that we look into ourselves and see and acknowledge the truth about who we are. And David said, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to be your messenger. I got a big lesson out of this one. I'm ready to go. And so this morning, as we think about confessing our sins, what do we think? Well, there are several things that that go through our minds as we think about confessing sin. One is, why should we confess? Why should we confess? Well, in reality, we don't think we should. We don't think we ought to. And the fact is that as we deal with our consciences, we compartmentalize, we segment things away in our consciences. We, we build, we build uh, uh, you know, what do they call those things in science fiction? What's that? Force fields, yes. We take, all, we take our consciences and, and the sins that we've done, and what we don't want to do is acknowledge their sins, so we build force fields out of denial and pushing them back, or, or force fields out of uh, 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 figuring out ways to, to determine that they're not really sin. Well, it wasn't really sin. Let me process through this. You know, In order for something to be sin, it has to be this and this and this, but you know, there were these circumstances and those circumstances, and that kind of mitigates everything, and so we don't really have a sin here force fields up. A couple of months later, it's breaking through. Well, I got to go through that again. Let's see. There were these things and these things and they went in and he said that and they did this and they turned around and did that and it, and, and, but it wasn't really a sin. It's back up. And that's is our lives. And all we're doing is we're, we're hardening and, and searing our consciences as we do that. We don't want to confess sin. We don't want to call our action sin. I mean, I, it's hyperbolic, but you could actually think of somebody who comes to you and says, well, yeah, I, I stuck him with the knife right in the chest, and he died. But, you know, it wasn't really sin, was it? I mean, there were mitigating circumstances, and he really made me mad. And You know, that's absurd, isn't it? It's an absurd thing for us to think of, of, of that as not being sin, but that's what we do all the time with all kinds of sins constantly. We, we take them and we, we hold them at bay so we don't have to think about them. God desires truth in the innermost being. He will not abide hypocrisy. Luke 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another... He, that is Jesus, began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And that's not Satan that's being talked about there. That's God. Almighty God has the authority to cast us into hell. And so, skipping over the center part of these verses I just read, because I'm going to come back to them later about everything that's covered up being revealed, you have the Pharisees who are hypocrites, liars. And Jesus says, beware of these guys. They're hypocrites. They're liars. And I'll tell you something about them. Their hypocrisy is evidence that they do not fear God. 
If they feared God, they would be truthful. But since they do not fear him, they can live a life of of giant force fields. That was the, the Pharisees, where they held all of the realities of their lives at bay. Jesus said they were, on the outside, they looked nice and clean, like a pretty white uh, uh, grave building at the graveyard. And on the inside, they were full of what grave buildings are full of, corruption and, and, and rotting flesh. But they were really good at covering up and holding their consciences at bay. Those who do not fear the Lord are, at the very foundation, liars. Do you understand? At the very foundation, if we do not fear the Lord, we are liars. Another reason we need to... to, uh, Confess our sin is that sin makes us sick in soul and body. Often in the Psalms, the psalmist writes and he says, I'm, I'm uh, uh, well, Psalm 31 says in verse 10, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, because of my sin, and my body is wasted away. You know, when we sin, it brings unpleasant consequences to soul and body. We are, we are, Carrying the weight, the oppression, the burden of the sin. And, some, and, it, and it always manifests in our soul and in our spirit and in our countenance. And it often even manifests in our flesh that we actually get sick. And so that's why in the book of James, in chapter 5, it says, If you're sick, go call the elders of the church and have them anoint you with oil. And if you've sinned, Confess, and God will forgive you. And then it says, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, what does that mean, one another? Well, it's in the context, right? It means the elders, right, and the pastors? Isn't that what it means? Well, the verse prior to that specifically talked about the elders, yes, and it talked about their sins being forgiven, yes. But this is a new verse, and it doesn't say the elders. It says, to one another. And pray for one another that you will be healed. And the implication is that there is affliction, sickness, not just physical, but soulish sickness from the carrying of the burden of sin in their lives and that they were to confess their sins to one another. And Calvin, when he talks about this, John Calvin, he just gets all over the Roman Catholic Church, and he calls them childish because of their their teaching that the only person that can hear the confession of a sin is a priest. Because he recognizes the necessity of the openness of the confession of sin to one another, and what it will do, and how it will see the sin gone and covered. It's essential. Sin makes us sick. Another reason to confess is that confession is a prerequisite to forgiveness. 1 John 1, verse 9, very familiar to us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, what's the really big word there? Loud? If. If. It's not a typesetting error. It's a condition. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us of our sins. We must confess our sins. Well, what do we need to confess? Well, we say only those sins. This is what we say. Okay, I'm I'm asking questions, and I'm I'm talking about how we deal with it, and then I want to go see what the Bible says about it. So... What do we need to confess? Well, we say only those sins that are discovered. Those are the sins we'll confess. And even in that case, we're not going to come clean about it. We'll just, you know, oh, you've got it on tape. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I guess I did do that. Well, what was I doing when I was off tape? Oh, nothing. I was a cherub when I was off tape. But the part you have on tape, I have to say, yeah, that was me. 
And that's how we are with our confession. Well, yeah, I guess if, you know, if it's completely impossible for me to any way escape you really knowing what I did, I guess I have to say, yeah, I did that. Sorry, my bad. And that's how we approach it. We confess only those sins that are so insipid or so general as to lump us into an unspecific pool that those who hear us or hear our confession could not possibly be scandalized. You understand what I'm saying by this? Our sins are just like uh, empty of any real meaning or scandal. And so we say, you know, what's a, I think I did something. I have to tell you, I did something that I shouldn't have done. So I needed to get that off my chest. I feel better now. Right? Instead of what? I went to this woman's apartment. And then we started being impure. And then we fornicated. And I didn't even know who she was. And then I left. It's awful. I've sinned an awful sin. You see the difference? I did did something I shouldn't have done. Just needed to tell somebody. I went to her apartment and we fornicated. Or the one we all like to do, well, you know, pray for me because I'm really struggling with my pride. Really? Really? What did your pride cause you to do? Did your pride cause you to go and sit in the front row so that everyone would see your seat? Did your pride cause you to take your $100 bill and wave it in the air and put it in the offering plate? Did your pride, what did your pride cause you to do? I want to hear about your sin. Did you run somebody off the road because you're more important than they are? Did you drive around to the right and pass 700 cars because you didn't want to wait for the merge line? What did you do? A letter from Martin Luther to his student, Melanchthon, August 1, 1521. One paragraph says, If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not the imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from him. Even if we were to kill and commit adultery thousands of times each day, some of us do. You understand? Kill and commit adultery thousands of times each day. I'd say most of us kill and commit adultery once in a while each day. Or some equivalent to it. He goes on, Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Melanchthon? No insipid general sins when we confess. We confess everything. Because, Luke 12, verse 2, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. You know, here's something for us to think about. God has promised that everything is going to be revealed. Everything about me is going to be revealed. 
everything. A day is coming when you will watch the Dave Carell show. You understand? And you're going to say to yourself, the only thing that's going to help you to watch it is the fear of when they show your movie. Do you understand me? Everything is going to be revealed. Well, what mitigates against that day? It's David's psalm. Do you understand? It's David confessing and saying, this is what I did. I'm not afraid to have it written down in history, in the annals of forever, that this is what I did. Because God can create in me a new heart. And because God can forgive my sins. And God can cleanse me from this unrighteousness. And you want to have all of that out before the movie rolls. Before the opening credits. This is the, this is the wonder of confessing our sin. That it gets out of us. And it's covered by the blood of Christ. Everything will be revealed. When do we confess our sins? Well, we, confess our, we say, well, let's confess our sins later or never. We really don't want to deal with the when question. And the when question really is answered in that we are to confess our sins as soon as we're made aware of them, either by conscience or confrontation. Which brings us back to conscience. Which brings us back to God's law. We are to confess our sins. That's the when. And so you read in the scripture about Paul going to, to preach, and as he preaches in a certain place, all the people bring their their magic devices, their Ouija boards, and their, and their, you know, super eight balls, and their, you know what I'm talking about? And their magic pamphlets, and their, and their dream catchers, and all this stuff. They bring it all into the center of town, and they build a big fire, and they all just parade it in. This is my sin. Here it is. Look at it. It's going into the fire. And they were set free. And it caused quite a hubbub in that town, if you read the account. Or John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. And the people come out, and they're, and they're there, and he's preaching a, a, a gospel of repentance from sin. And it says that as he baptized them, they were confessing their sins. And I was thinking about this. I said in the first service, you know how it was that they confessed their sins, right? John stood there in the water. Depending on what your position on baptism is, he was either in the water very shallow or he's in the water very deep. Right? And he stands there, and they come out to him, and John leans his ear over, and they whisper into his ear, My sin is. And John says, Oh, good! Now I can baptize you. Do you think that's how it was? No, I think they stood and they made confession of their sin. And it was a confession that other people heard. I have been a prostitute for years. It's a horrible, horrible sin. Would you, would you pray that God will forgive me? Will he wash me and cleanse me? I repent of my sin of prostitution. I've been a tax collector for years. I've been skimming money off the top and charging people more than I was supposed to for years. Could God forgive me for that sin? I've been greedy for years. Could God forgive me of that sin? And then off in the corner were the men who were the cover-up guys, and you know what they were saying? (laughs) Pharisees off there. John looks at them, and what does he say? You brood of vipers, who warned you? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They weren't acknowledging their sin. Do you think they were any better? Think they were any better? Pray hard, Pharisees, for you are quite a sinner, as Luther would say. So they confess their sin immediately. 
to whom do we confess our sin? Well, we say we want to confess our sin to one or two people who will certainly have no expectation for us to go to war against our sin. And so it's like two college guys, you know, they meet in the dorm room and they're talking together and yet one guy says, well, I got to tell you, I looked at pornography again. And the other guy looks at him and he says, yeah, me too. And then they kind of are awkward for a minute and then they say, well, see you next week for more confession and accountability. And off they go. And so we find people to confess to who won't get in our face and, and warn us about the severity of what we do and call us to account because we want safe confession. But that's not what happened in James. It says you come to the elders or you come to one another and you confess. And it really is one another. And it really is someone that is hearing your sin who understands the severity of what you're saying and who can speak to you and pray for you as they ought to do and give you words of comfort when it's appropriate to give you words of comfort. To persons appropriate for hearing. That is, sometimes it should be women to women, maybe most of the time, and men to men, younger to older, less mature to more mature. There are, there are guidelines to this of who we confess to, but our problem isn't you know, our anxiousness to know the guidelines so that we know to protect people who ought to be protected in hearing our confession. Our problem with this is we don't want to confess anything to anybody. We don't want anybody to know about it. We want to cover it up. We want a force field. We want a good reputation. That's what we look for. We should also confess our sins to our children and our families in appropriate ways. I don't mean that you go to your 10-year-old child and say, uh, I need to confess something to you. I need to tell somebody, would you pray for me and then would you absolve me of my sin and, and give me some scripture references to look at. Right? I mean that your children know that you sin. Really sin. That you do ask their forgiveness when you sin against them. That you say, you know, Daddy is an awful sinner. If you knew other things I did, I'm so sorry that it's, it's, it's something you have to know. In sin, my mother conceived me. It's bad. It's worse than you imagine with me. I'm sorry that that's true, but I have to tell you, you've got to know because this is the world you live in and it's in you too. And you're going to have to fight and you're going to have to confess too. You understand, if we raise our children as Pharisees, then they turn out to be wacko. They grow up and they they realize that there's some discontinuity between reality. The reality of our homes and the reality of their hearts and our hearts. We also confess our sin to the world. And again, we don't confess our sin to the world in the same way. Unless you need to go to somebody in the world and ask for their forgiveness and say that you sinned against them and they need to forgive you or would they forgive you. That is very necessary. But here's what we do instead. Instead of us confessing our sin to the world in an appropriate way, what we do is we go out into the world and we sin all our sins in front of the world. And we don't ever tell anybody in the church about it. And so what happens is the world knows all about our sins. They know about our fornications. They know about our thefts. They know about everything about us. And it's a scandal to them because they look at us and say, well, there it is. There's the proof again. Those Christians are all just hypocrites. There's nothing to it. And the church doesn't even know, or we think they don't, and we never confess it to the church. How should we confess our sin to the world? Well, we should go to the world like David did and produce for the world an evangel out of our own lives and say, I have to tell you something. I'm a sinner. I'm a wicked man, co-worker. You've got to know this. You've seen me, right? But I have to tell you something. Every time I sin, I, I go to Jesus Christ, and he forgives me of my sin. And it's, it's, he cleanses me. And I know that you sin too. Do you know that you could go to Jesus Christ and have the guilt of that sin removed from you and be cleansed? 
Instead of that, we just sin in and among and with and toward them. And bring horrible reputation on the name of God. But we should be confessing our sin to the world. Rather than them just seeing our hypocrisy. How should we confess? Well, what we want to do is to keep our pride and our reputation. And I think this is the biggest thing. If you were thinking about this whole sermon in a, in a big picture way, what you want to think about is that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, that God desires truth in the inner being. That in order for that to be a reality, we must be willing to forfeit all of reputation and all of pride. What, what really is your reputation? Because I got to tell you, if people think you don't, you're not a sinner, if, people, if you have that as your reputation, then some people are just saying, yeah, there's a hypocrite, and others are just, are just sadly deceived. I mean, if I could get you all to turn around, I don't want you to do it, but if you get all to turn around and look at everybody in the room and just, just walk down the aisles with your eyes and look at every person, you can, I can tell you something. Sinner, 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 sinner. Don't know, but I know they're a sinner. Sinner, 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 sinner. You understand? And so to, to try to hold on to our reputation, what's the point? If there's something good about this church, it's that our reputation is that we're sinners under the blood of Jesus Christ. And that there's no cover-up. And so my call to you this morning is, as regards your personal life, throw the lid off it. You know? Do it appropriately. If you're not sure what that means, go see an elder. Come talk to one of the pastors. Do it appropriately. But throw the lid off. Get this monkey off your back. Confess your sin. You will be free. You will be healed. God will be glorified. The world will have a witness, an evangelistic witness, if you would just uncover it. Throw it off. It's good. It feels good. To confess our sins. It's a privilege. Only God made provision for this. It's one of the most marvelous things he did. He made a way for us to get rid of the monkey off our back. Marvelous, marvelous. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise I make that appeal to you. I do want to say one more thing. And I, t- I said in the first service that I think the elders maybe ought to have a, a class or, or uh, a pamphlet or both to deal with the question about what we do when people come and confess their sins to us. How should we respond? Because you should be hearing people confess their sin to you, not just their sins personally against you that they're asking for forgiveness for, but also other sins in your small groups, in the context of the small groups. You should be hearing people confess their sin just as you should be confessing yours. What do you do when somebody comes to you that you really have, you know, a, a, a high opinion of? And they come up to you and they say, I want to confess a sin to you. And then pretty soon, they don't give you this general sin, you know, pray for my pride. You know, I come up to you and I say, you know, no, don't pray for my pride. I'm not going to come and confess that sin to you. Uh, uh, I want to come to a man and say to a man, uh, listen, I looked twice at a woman. Do you know what, men, do you know what it means to look twice at a woman? Do you know what it means, men? And I think all you women know what it means. I looked twice at a woman. It was sin. I want to confess it to you. Now, a lot of you men would be scandalized. None of you women want me to do that. I know that. <laughs> And I'm not going to. But a lot of you men would be scandalized if I came to you and did that. But take it away from me and just say somebody that you hold in high esteem. Not me. Somebody you hold in high esteem comes to you and they want to confess their sins. How are you going to respond to it? What's the first thing that's going to happen in your mind? 
you should hear some of the sins we hear confessed. I regularly go, oh, but I'm also glad because I know it's healing, it's life, it's forgiveness. It has to be done. And I go, oh, because I'm an idiot. And because I don't think sin is that bad or that pervasive. Sin is that bad. Sin is that pervasive. It is much more pervasive. And that's why we get surprised when we hear about it. That's why we're scandalized. So steal yourself, first of all, to hear confession of sin by, by teaching yourself the truth that sin is pervasive. It's all-encompassing. In sin, our mothers conceived us. And then you'll be ready for the next step, which is to listen. Ask them questions about their sin. I'm just going to go these quickly, but you really need to talk to people about it. We need to have something with the elders about this, I think. Ask them about their sin. Question them about if there's more things they need to say. Talk to them about the with sobriety about the awfulness of sin. Don't let the moment go away without both of you looking, or all of you looking into the reality of the awful, the awful, disgusting horror of sin and what it had, to, what had to be done to atone for it. That it's awful. And then look to God's word and pray. And then read scriptures that give absolution and forgiveness and pronounce God's kindness and forgiveness in our lives over our sins. And when it's appropriate, you may need to go get help. You may say, whoa, okay, okay. It's, it's a sin that a lot of people sin, but it may require a little more help. And so go and get the elders or go and get a pastor, your small group leader, and start that process. But church, I know that we do confess our sins. I'm glad to be able to tell my family and my friends that we confess our sins. But I know that we don't confess our sins. Does that make sense? It's not a contradiction. We do confess our sins and we don't confess our sins. And it is a privilege It is life and freedom and deliverance to confess our sins. Let's do it. Let's obey God. Confess your sins to one another. Let's obey him. Let's follow David's example in this psalm. He believed God that it would be good if he would immortalize his sin in a psalm as a testimony to God's mercy toward him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray today that you will lead us in confession, that you will turn our hearts to be truthful inside, that we will not cover up, but, Lord, that we would trust in you by faith. Help us, O Lord, have mercy on us, we pray, especially now as we approach your table, that we will believe with faith, that we will expose all of our sins to you, knowing ourselves well and judging ourselves well. We pray in Jesus' name.